0: When you save on auto insurance for driving safe with USAA SafePilot, you'll feel like a big deal. Even in a traffic jam. Save up to 30% with USAA SafePilot. Restrictions apply.
1: Hello and welcome to the Boys in the Band podcast, where we bring you exclusive interviews with musicians who soundtracked the naughties indie scene. I'm Peter Smith and I'm Richard Gallagher. And on today's show,
2: we speak to a band responsible for perhaps the greatest cover of all time, and a fair few fine songs
1: of their own. It's the Futureheads. Here's Ross Millard, guitarist in the band Tennis, how they reworked that Kate Bush track, Hounds of Love, into an indie disco classic.
0: You know, at that time, that, those oars were, were the sort of thing that we were doing over everything, really. So <laughs> we,
1: just,
0: <laughs> we, we just sort of tried a few things out in between me and Jaff, those two parts seem to sort of stick quite quite well they kind of play off each other quite nicely and that left enough space for sort of Barry to sing the, the sort of lead vocal over the top and yeah i mean in a way it's probably the straightest future heads song any of those first two albums at least you know But, um, but um but yeah i mean it was popular. I, I, I think we've only done one gig where we didn't play it and that was because we were um, we had to come off because of an electrical storm. It
1: landed, you know. <laughs> well, how many times do you think you've heard that song, Pete? Oh my word! Every well, yeah, probably every indie club night you've ever been to, on the radio at least. Which once a day, <laughs> twice a day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Even now, all these years on, it's just it's everywhere you go, isn't it? It's an absolute classic, though.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um,
1: But the pod's not all just about that one song. Ross does tell us all about
2: how the Southern Four piece, which also features Barry and Dave Hyde and Jeff Craig, how they boomed in the 2000s, took their experimental approach to new levels in 2012, and after
1: a long hiatus, made their comeback last year. Plus, there's a really interesting discussion about mental health in the music business and the challenges that bands face when they're on the road. Settle in and enjoy this
2: chat. It's a good one then have a look at our social media channels just search for boys in the band pod on twitter facebook and instagram because we have a future heads competition for you guys to enjoy too enjoy
1: now i'm delighted to say we're joined by ross Miller today ross how are you doing thanks for joining us
0: yeah no worries man thanks i'm good who are you
1: yeah very good thank you very good
2: Lovely stuff, Ross. Great to have you on. Um, so obviously as an experienced performer, uh, you know it's a, a very important uh, to have a good warm-up. So we like to kick off each of these pods with a bit of a sound check, just three quick questions to get you going. So first of all, uh, where in the world do we find you today?
0: I'm at home, as pretty much every, every man and the dog <laughs> yeah. is, or should be at least, uh, on uh, Newcastle's Quayside.
1: Very nice, very nice. We're, you're in Newcastle, but we know you're Sunderland fan, right
0: Ross, is that correct? Well, I'm, I'm from Sunderland. Uh, all, all the bands from Sunderland, but I've lived through here in Newcastle for more than half my life now,
1: so they both feel like home in a weird way. Oh right, okay. I was just wondering if you've been watching Sunderland Till I Die on Netflix. Whether you could give us a review of that as a uh, as a man from the area. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean it's, it's an amazing documentary. Like you know, it's just I wish that they I wish that they weren't sort of charting the. The League One trauma, you know, I mean, <laughs> sort of back in the Premier League days, really, you know, because it's a club that's on its knees at the moment, like, but hopefully not for too much longer, but you just never know, do you?
1: No, so it can be yeah. a long time in League One.
2: Away from, from the sport and being locked down in in, the, in TV, what about uh, live music? Any, uh, any gigs you've been to in the last 12 months that particularly stick out?
0: Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, um, I, I love that, that band Shellac. And, and they did it at the boiler shop here in Newcastle uh, in the wintertime. And that was the one that sort of particularly stands out for me, because that was the first time they've been to Newcastle. Um, but yeah, my partner works at the Sage over in Gateshead there. And so I'm always there watching, watching something or other. It's just a bit of a shame at the moment that because of the coronavirus situation, all, all live music's on,
2: on, on the blocks, isn't it? Yeah. So,
0: you know, it, 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 it feels like it's going to be a while before we can get out there and, watch something or or do a gig ourselves, you know?
1: Yeah, obviously we know. We want to talk to you about the gigs you've got coming up later in the year. I mean, have you heard any, any word on those ones yet about whether they're still going ahead as planned or just waiting to hear, I guess?
0: Yeah, I mean we've sort of had to reschedule anything that we had in the diary this side of sort of September. So we've got some stuff coming in September and we've got a big tour in October. Um and obviously most of the festival bookings that we had have either been pulled completely or Rescheduled for, for next year, you know. I mean, we were meant to be in Austria this week, at, um, snow bombing. So it, mm. it is a, it is a shame, man. You know, because obviously, it, when you're in a band, you look forward to playing live probably more than anything
1: else. So it does feel a little bit disappointing at the moment, but it is what it is, isn't it? Yeah, what can you do? What can you do? All right, Ross, well, you know, this podcast, we're all about sort of rewinding the clock a little bit back to those mid-naughties. Right? Let's take you back to the summer of 2004 when uh, Future Heads' debut album comes out. Absolute stonker with some, yeah, loads of hits on there. You know, I'm sure you've been told this many times before, but it just felt like almost every track on that on that debut album was uh, was real it's real gold. So talk to us about it, how it came about, how... Uh, how you guys put that album together, and you know where, what was the starting point for the Future Heads, First of all,
0: yeah. So I mean, we, we started the band late in the year 2000, and obviously that feels like a hell of a long time ago now. But when I think back to how we began, it was it was in a very very small way. You know, there's sort of there's no music industry in the northeast, and there certainly wasn't then, and there wasn't a precedent for any bands of our kind of um ilk, any of our contemporaries who sort of gone off and record deals or made a living out of being in a band at all you know it, it very much seemed like a kind of part-time hobby that you just did for the love of it alongside lots of other things and so the band came together really slowly you know the first few years was just playing loads of DIY shows in the region and um, we were lucky enough to be part of a good scene of bands up here who all had the same sort of like-minded nature about wanting to organize their own gigs and bring in bands from outside the area and outside the country a lot of times. So the DIY scene was really strong in the Northeast. And and, and that really kind of got our ambitions up, to be honest. You know, the, the thought of sort of uh, playing outside the region. We played our first gig in um, Glasgow at King's Huts. That was the first show we did outside of Northeast. And that really kind of felt like a, an exciting move and a good thing to do. And in 2002, in the summer, some friends of ours who'd organised this sort of DIY tour of squat clubs and youth centres and cafes in Europe asked if he wanted to jump in the van with them and go on go on tour with them for two weeks. And until that point, Pete Brewis, who's obviously now known as the musician in field music, he was playing drums in the band. Um, but because of that tour, I think he was sort of always trying to balance doing both bands and that was the sort of tipping point for him and it was at that point that we got Barry's brother Dave in to play, play drums with us back then and obviously that's just been the way we've been ever since
1: well, That must have um, felt like a bit of an adventure though Ross sort of setting off to Europe as you say not many bands sort of emerging from your local area but you guys were sort of doing it yourself and yeah as I say a bit of an exciting adventure across Europe surely
0: Oh, totally. I mean, it felt like, it felt like the dream at the time, you know, I mean, that was the pinnacle of our ambitions in a sense, you know, like, get out, get out of the country and play our music in front of an audience in Germany, in France, Switzerland. Um, and at that point, we were in awe of this other band they're, they're called Milky Wimpshake. They're sort of, they're quite well known on that sort of like twee DIY uh, level, especially around here anyway. And they were <laughs> at the time. Um and still good friends of ours. And yeah, man, it was just a great opportunity and too good to, too good to turn down. And I remember that when we got back from that tour, the last show was in Newcastle and, and, and that really felt like we were a proper band after that, you know, we'd done a tour, it felt real. And um, after that, I think we, we sort of had different ambitions for ourselves. We, we suddenly sort of wanted to make an album and we wanted to sort of
2: maybe see what the possibility was of us,
0: it's not making a living out of it than at least being full time with it.
2: You speak about the the sort of the northeast scene not being mm-hmm. quite as vibrant initially, but obviously it started up with you guys and the likes of field music coming about, and obviously Maximo yeah. Park from Newcastle. Um, but so, how would you say like the band was sort of shaped by being from Sunderland and having that sort of lack of a scene initially? And where did you therefore get your influences from?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think sort of Sunderland's played an enormous part in our identity and the sort of, um, history that we've now got, you know, it was a city and it still is a city really that doesn't have a sort of great deal of cultural infrastructure and venues and stuff, but what it has got are really kind of energized people who want to make things happen. You have to use sort of crappy little spaces and anywhere that you can get your hands on them to, to, to make things happen, but people are doing it. They were doing it then and they're still doing it now. Um, And really, I I don't know if it was just a sort of strange coincidence or if there was something more to it, but the Northeast at that time in the sort of early 2000s was starting to kind of come up with some really unique sounding bands. Um, Everyone in in that sort of scene and part of that little click all sounded totally different from, from each other. And that was really what was the most sort of interesting thing about it in a sense. You know, it wasn't just like a load of bands all copying each other. Um we were just supporting each other, doing very different things um but you know we we sing in our own voice, our own accent, which isn't so unusual now, but maybe sort of twenty years ago it what it, the radio was especially filled with bands that have this sort of like mid atlantic drawl kind yeah. of unrecognizable accents, and no real kind of british identity about them um and I, I, I'm sure you'll sort of remember well yourselves, but like that slew of bands that came out of Britain in sort of 2004, five, six, all had very strong sort of regional identities, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and and that was the first time in my lifetime, really, that that British music had sort of mainstream gi- British guitar music had sort of brought those elements to the the forefront, and that's what made it quite exciting, I think.
1: Was it conscious effort, Ross, to sort of, you know, not, not to sound like you're from Sunday, just but for the music to sound a little bit different? And you talk about the, the, you know, the different bands in your area sounding a bit different. Was there was a conscious effort that you you had a future head sound in mind when you guys went in to record or write these songs, or was it just something that came about by the characters that you are in the band?
0: I think it was a conscious decision to sort of think about who who we were mm. and and sort of what what sort of characteristics we had as sort of musicians and sort of young young kids really that sort of wanted to be in this band together um and all of the all of the bands that we liked m- mutually were all kind of fairly artistic punk rock bands you know who had really strong kind of aesthetic ideas and and sort of um really kind of uh, distinct music musicality you know and I'm thinking of like, you know, the the new wave bands like Wire and Gendell 4 and XTC and Devo and all the kind of fidgety late 70s, early 80s post punk bands all had quite interesting sort of characteristics. And at the time, we felt like late 90s, early 2000s guitar music, by comparison, was turning into something incredibly bland. And so... I think for us, we just tried to do something that was interesting to us. That happened to sort of that that sensibility was happening to be going on in Liverpool and Manchester and Portsmouth and other other parts of the country at the same time. We just didn't quite realise it yet.
2: Yeah, sure, and and obviously things really did. Uh, progress on, you know, from, just from the initial Sunderland scene, like say uh, on the European tours and whatever. Uh, but then a little bit later on came some, some pretty big deals, uh, big big support tours in America. You know, supporting the likes of the Pixies and the Foo Fighters. You know, massive deal for for the band from Sunderland. And how did life on the road and gigging in the US compare to to back home in the UK for you guys?
0: Uh, well, man, I mean touring in America is just about as good as it gets, really, for a for a band. Guitar band like I was, you know. I mean, it it was the true sort of idea of of what touring would be like, you know, something like America, where every state has its own culture and and sort of the audiences are different everywhere you go. The venues have got so much history. And when we first started going over there, you could see straight away that there was a real kind of. Adoration from American music fans about about English bands starting to come over because I think for a, for a long time prior to that English artists hadn't really bothered with America. You know, I think they thought of it as being a territory that was sort of too difficult to to be worth their time. The first the first thing we did in America was in September 2004, and it was a support tour with Franz Ferdinand, and um that's a band that we really had a lot in common with. You know, we we liked all the same music growing up they were very very staunchly diy in the beginning as well and um we got on really well and that too was incredible for us we went straight back to do our own tour and um that first that first record did well for us over there and we enjoyed being there we spent a lot of time over in america um but yeah i mean I, I think once you've sort of signed a record deal and you are committed to releasing an album you're quite happy to just have a full area of things, you know, so whether that was playing in England or playing in Europe or anywhere else doing festivals, you just want to be busy and you want to feel like things are sort of going your way. And it was really exciting making the album, but it was much more exciting sort of releasing it into the world and touring it,
2: you know. Yeah, definitely, and and on the touring side of things, did you have like um, I'm sure you probably enjoyed most of it, but did you have like a preference between you know these big arena tours or your little club nights or your festival appearances? What what was the, your sort of preference if you could uh, if you could pick and choose? Yeah. I think it's it's changed
0: over the years, and that you know, because my thoughts on that now are very different than how they were back then. I think back then it's a real kind of um, buzz to play in a kind of 10,000, 20,000 capacity room um, or on a big festival stage, whether you're supporting someone or you're doing your your own thing, regardless. In the beginning, I think we felt like we were little kind of ambassadors for Sunderland, really. You know, everywhere we went, we were the future heads from Sunderland and it felt like it was our sort of uh, mission, if you like, to kind of spouse about the place and kind of get it on people's radar we were really proud of proud of the city, you know. Um, but also, I think you're just wide-eyed and bushy-tailed, aren't you? And you're just like, enjoying the experience, regardless of what it is. Whereas nowadays, I think if we had did, did big shows, you know, if we were to sort of support an artist playing in a twenty-thousand-capacity place we'd have to pick a very particular set list in order for it to work well for us and for the audience. And
2: yeah, sure. I think it's a,
0: it's a different challenge, you know, you sort of, um, you can enjoy both, but they're very different experiences. And I think the songs you play and the approach you have changes really quite dramatically depending. Um, but that's why I like festivals, to be honest, because I think festivals are the ultimate kind of middle ground between that where you have to take a take it as a given that not not everyone in the audience knows who you are and you've got a challenge to sort of try and present the best version of yourself at any given moment and you can still be sort of um, interesting about the set list you, you you sort of choose and the songs you play but you are also aware that you're not necessarily just playing to your, your
1: crowd and there's something there's something really worthwhile in that I think. Yeah it's a great showcase of the band I guess, isn't it? Any festival appearance like that. Um, uh, Ross, we've got to ask you about Hounds of Love because obviously I've, I've already said how how solid that that debut album was all the way through. But there's no no doubting that that one really you know crossed over into the mainstream and obviously you know yeah. put the band out in front of a much wider audience. Um, so, I mean, first of all, what what actually drew you guys to that song in the first place, and then what was the process in reworking it uh, you know away from what the original product into what what you guys ended up with.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, that 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 tour, that European tour that I was telling you about before, that, that was sort of um, what
1: what gave us the idea
0: to do Hands of Love, because Jash had made a few sort of mixtapes to have on in the van. Obviously, we were spending so much time in the van with this other band, and he'd done one of these ones where, like an alphabetical one, where A was, like, I don't know, ACDC or something, and B was Kate Bush. <laughs> right. And every time it, every time it came on in the van... We'd all sort of get it turned up. And we t- talked a lot about, at that time, it, se- it seemed really unlikely that she would ever perform live ever again and how much of a shame it was that we'd never get to hear this song played live and all that sort of stuff. Because um, Kate Bush hadn't released a record for, for Donkeys at this time. Um, and so that, that got us sort of talking between us about, well, when we get home, maybe we should have a, a little practice and, and, and try and arrange a version of this because the next gig that we do with Milky Wimpshake, this band we've been touring with, it would be quite nice to just sort of play it at the end and surprise them with it really, it became a bit of an anthem of our tour and so we, when we got home we sort of quickly worked up a version in the practice room didn't spend too long on it to be totally honest I mean the arrangement that she has I mean it sounds unbelievable but it is actually really quite simple and there's like a cello part that's just playing A major all the way through. There's hard, I don't think there's a single guitar on her version, and it's all about the rhythm, the drums, and then that vocal melody. And so we kept it quite simple as well, but because we all sing in the band, we had to try and think of something that we could all each do over the top of it. And at, you know, at that time, that, those oars were, were the sort of thing that we were doing over everything, really. So <laughs> we, just, <laughs> we, we just sort of tried a few things out between me and Jeff, those two parts seem to sort of stick quite, quite well. They kind of play off each other quite nicely, and that left enough space for sort of Barry to sing the, the sort of lead vocal over the top. And yeah, I mean, in a way, it's probably the straightest Future Head song, any of those first two albums, at least. You know, um, but um, but yeah, I mean, it was popular. I, I, I think we've only done one gig where we didn't play it. And that was because we were. Um, we had to come off because of an electrical storm.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah,
0: it's well and truly in the set list now.
2: Yeah, definitely. It's such a, such a huge song. I mean, I looked into it, and went into number eight in the UK charts. Enemy named it the best single 2005. You know, loads of airplay. Even today, you know, I think if you, if you listen to Radio X all week, then you're going to hear it. You know, at least a couple of times a week. Um, were you surprised about how big it got? You know, given sort of. You, given on on the back of what you just said about how it came about.
0: Yeah, man, I mean, I think we were surprised about how any how big any anything that we released actually got, it, especially at that time, because,
2: we, you know, I mean,
0: Hounds of Loves maybe is not, not the best example, but we, we're we an oddball band, man, you know, I mean, that <laughs> first record's pretty strange, and, it, you know, for it to be, like, a, considered a mainstream guitar album is quite odd when a lot of the songs are sort of 90 seconds long or two two minutes long. And they've got no sections that repeat or anything like that. But Hounds of Love, I suppose, is 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 completely different from that. And and that was why when we sent the album out to reviewers ahead of it coming out, we left Hounds of Love off the promo copies so that none of the reviews would would mention Hounds of Love. We didn't want we didn't want the record to be kind of summed up by that particular song at the time. We mm-hmm. weren't it it wasn't that we were um uncomfortable about it or anything but we did also want the rest of the album to stand on its own two feet and um and and and, and, and it did you know and i think hounds of love sort of exists as a well as far as we're concerned uh, a, a great single you know i mean it, it's certainly our most sort of popular single and, 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 and for obvious reasons, you know, I think it's the most sort of um, melodic and simplistic, but obviously it's it's got that hook as well, hasn't it? So Yeah, yeah, so sure. Yeah, really proud of it, even still now, you know, we got a little message from Kate herself sort of uh, commending us about it and everything, so there's no sort of bad feelings there. Do you know what I mean? She was into it. She recorded, she phoned us up while we were making the second album uh, to, to sort of, I don't know, compliment us on it, I suppose, really, but it was just, just a really nice moment to hear from her about it, because you never know how those sorts of, sorts of things are going to go. Yeah,
1: yeah. I wonder if it's just, um, well, in part two of this podcast, we'll talk more about what came next after that debut, but did you feel a temptation then to, for, for every album you released afterwards, what's the, what's the, should we come up with a, another good iconic cover, song like that? Did you feel any pressure at all to try and replicate that with other songs? No,
0: absolutely not, man. I mean, I think that the pressure that we might have felt was all around our own writing and, and sort of wanting that challenge of having songs of our own that also stood up to that, that song, you know? And I think mm. think about, like, I don't know, for, well, for us anyway, like Decent Days and Nights and Beginning of the Twist and some of those other songs, but for us and for a lot of our fans, they're sort of, very very equal weight in a sense. I know that Hounds of Love crossed over a bit more than the others, Mm-hmm. But um for, for us, I think it was just about trying to sort of keep our music interesting for us, and obviously there's sort of you know, when you've played music together for 20 years, those things can you can have your ups and downs, and people can start sort of uh, having different ideas about what that might mean. but I'm, I'm glad to say that we're still as close as we ever were today, and, and it's, it's really great
2: that we're still still doing it, you know, even after a little bit of a break. Excellent. Yeah, well, we're, exactly. We're going to get on to, to that in, in part two, if that's all right, Ross. We, uh, we'll discuss yeah, sure. what came next for the band and why after a little break that you've made come back and set to tour in October. So um, we'll talk again in part two.
0: Hello, my name is Ross Millard from the Future Heads. You're listening to the Boys in the Band podcast.
2: You're listening to the Boys in the Band podcast. For more naughty nostalgia, check out our Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages and make sure you hit subscribe to the podcast for more interviews like this.
1: Welcome back to the Boys in the Band podcast. So Ross, after the success of that debut album, you followed up with News and Tributes, again, some you know, more great tunes in there as well, but then came a split with your record label, 679 Recordings. So what's the story there and what happened?
0: Yeah, it's, it's it's sort of a really sort of funny time in the band's existence, That to be honest, because we had a good relationship with 679, which was like a sort of a subsidiary label of Warner Brothers. And the guy who sort of ran it had come over from XL recordings and he wanted to run six seven nine in a sort of similar way to XL really, you know, so where they had like White Stripes and Dizzy Rask and the Avalanches and all these really this really eclectic roster. That's what six seven nine was sort of building towards. You know, they had Us and the Streets and Mystery Jets and Kano and Polyphonic Spree and they were they were a really interesting label run by proper music fans. But after that second record had come out, this is like a period of time where the music industry is completely changing. So, you know, before that first album came out, there was no YouTube, there was no streaming. There was no sort of um, d- digital music as a platform. It wasn't, it wasn't a thing at all. You know, I suppose MySpace was the closest you had, um, which we sort of very much used to, to our full advantage at the time. But after that second record had came out, all of a sudden you had things like YouTube and Napster and illegal downloading and all this stuff, and the music industry as a landscape had sort of changed completely. Really, um, and the pressure was on labels everywhere. You know, money was becoming much more tight, um, and and sort of something something had to give. And alongside this, we were managed by well, we still are managed by a company called Big Life who at the time was sort of headed up by a music industry titan called Jazz Summers, who sadly now passed away. But Jazz was a sort of a man who was sort of equally feared and respected, really, in the music industry. He'd managed Lisa Stansfield, and he'd been involved with Wham, and he managed The Verve and Badly Drum Boy. And he was a big name, and he was sort of quite keen on exploring what this sort of new music industry might look like if artists had took more control over their own intellectual property and looked into owning the rights to their own recordings and releasing their own music. And he was really keen for us to sort of set up our own label. He knew that we were kind of come from a punk rock background and he knew that we were interested in being in more control of our own releases anyway. And as the industry changed, he really sort of started to back that idea as well. And 679 had sort of offered us our third sort of uh, instalment, our third advance for the third record, but they wanted to renegotiate the finances of that down, as as you would, given the changes in the industry and the sort of restrictions they were under, and the fact that News and Tributes had probably sold half the copies that the first record had sold, which actually looking back now is still still quite a lot of copies really but back then it seemed like a big deal and so for us we basically just said thanks but no thanks to that extension of the deal and, and, and we decided to sort of put our eggs in the basket of releasing our own music and setting up our own label and trying something new and a bit different.
1: Feels like, a, so brave, we went it. Feels like a brave move that though Russ to, to step away from something you know the tangible offer into a bit of an unknown world. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we sort of
0: fully realized the implications of it right at the (laughs) time, you know, I think with the sort of backing of our management and the confidence that they had, I think we thought, okay, yeah, we can do this because it's sort of, I already had at that time a very small kind of seven inch singles label that I was running with a couple of friends. And so I knew what the behind the scenes process was of sort of getting distributors on board and working with record shops and, and all that sort of stuff. I think we were up, up for the challenge of it because it felt like the sort of thing that a band like ourselves should be doing, really. And we weren't the only ones doing it. You know, I think that, you know, as soon as the likes of Block Party and the, the Cribs got out of their deals, they did a similar thing. And um, it, So it wasn't like, I'm not saying we blazed a trail necessarily, but that, at that time, this this was a sort of viable option for a band like ours. I I, I don't regret it in in many respects I mean I think the thing that you miss being signed to a major label is that huge marketing budget that they have but also the the workforce the manpower the the amount of people who've got a kind of fairly objective view on the music they're working with but they're all kind of still invested in making it a a success you know I think you know obviously we still had a team around us that was sort of putting the records out and working on them with us but that, that becomes much
2: smaller and tighter and it becomes a different type of affair, really. Cool, sorry, quite a challenge, as you say, sort of to, to go out on your own, but you, you did so, you started up your own label and the next two albums sort of followed after news after and tributes, you had This Is Not The World and then uh, Chaos, and that's four albums in, in nearly six years, um, which is pretty prolific, sort of, by by the standards at the time. Did it feel like yeah. you were doing loads at the time or was it was you it just uh, really prolific writers or were you just... Uh, intent on putting as much out there as you could?
0: I think we were just on the on the hamster wheel, really, after a certain point. You know, I think that your you sort of uh, mentality toward it sort, sort of changes. You don't stop enjoying it. And you don't stop appreciating it and loving it. But your kind of approach to being in a band becomes very different after after your first record. You know, it's all of a sudden, it's your livelihood. It's what you're doing for a living. and And it's also this thing that you've sort of spent most of your life dreaming about being, being a possibility. Um, so, two, two, like an album every two years, to us, felt like what we should be doing. You know, yeah. you write an album, you record it, you tour it, and then you go back to the drawing board and you do it all over again. And I think after four versions of that, I mean, a few things started to happen, really. First of all, we started to feel like we might want to sort of break up that, that cycle by doing something different we just weren't quite sure what um second of all the kind of um health and and, and mental health of some of the band members was sort of not great i think like that's sort of six eight ten years of tour and it's sort of kind of taken its its toll amongst other things like life usually does with people and um i think by the time we got to the end of tour and the chaos i think something definitely needed to to change for us we certainly felt like the world didn't need another future heads record as it was at that, at that moment in time so that's when we decided to make an acapella album and sort of try <laughs> something a little bit a little bit different for ourselves really you know
1: yeah well yeah we've talked about how you've been sort of quite experimental all the way through this this interview ross and or the band have been quite experimental and but a rant takes it to another level doesn't it acapella of uh, future head hits and covers and Yeah, where did did this idea come from? And was it fun to record or a challenge? (laughs) Or both? (laughs) A
0: little bit of both, I suppose. I mean, I've got to say, like, the the sort of context around this is everything, really, because we've toured The Chaos for a long time, actually. Um, Probably more touring on that record than anything since our our first album. And um, we did some really unusual things, like, we supported Linkin Park on a arena tour around Europe um like you know things in hindsight that we probably should have just turned down um but because we were sort of like I say on that treadmill you just you you take the gigs and you do them and you try and make the best of them but Barry in particular wasn't in a great a great place um but we needed a little bit of time time off or, or at least to do something totally different and we'd done one of those sort of like live lounge appearances where we'd done an a cappella version of uh, a Calice song, and um, because we'd always sang in four part harmony, we'd always in the studio quite enjoyed just hearing what the mix was like without any of the the backline in it anyway, you know, just to kind of hear <laughs> how, <laughs> out the ch- how out of tune we might be <laughs> with each other or whether the sort of parts were working or not, and so. The, the idea of doing an acapella record just came from that really, you know, kind of people sometimes saying, Oh, you know, the, the harmony arrangements are really nice. And sometimes they don't come across because of the electric guitars. And it would be nice to hear them a little bit more. And just, you know, little, little things like that started to add adult... up. And we'd always been a big fan of um, Philip Glass and Steve Reich. And, you know, the, the minimalist composers who had that kind of, polyphonic approach to the music that they were writing i mean obviously they're absolute masters but we we sort of tried to take a little bit of that into our sort of vocal arrangements and stuff anyway and we just thought oh well why don't we have a go at arranging some songs just for vocals and and see how that works and we made the record in newcastle at home it was easy to make we enjoyed the process um and when it came to doing a tour, we thought, oh, well, this is a chance to present a version of this band that that nobody's ever seen before, that, that we've never even seen before. And it was one of the most enjoyable experiences we, we'd ever had, to be honest.
2: Great stuff. So really, really interesting album and enjoyable tour followed. Uh, but then after that, that's where the, the pause seemed to hit. You know, the the, the band stopped playing together um tours yeah. sort of stopped didn't release music for a good few years so, so talk us through that stage what sort of happened there
0: well i mean i think that sort of um we've all given sort of d- different interviews about this over the years so i don't think there's any sort of problem in in sort of saying that the barry in particular was suffering um with a real bad spell of poor mental health um he didn't feel well enough to participate in the band at that particular time this is sort of 2013-14 this all sort of came to a head um we toured extensively for a long time and i certainly sort of could see it coming and i couldn't begrudge anyone at that point saying that they needed a break from it um we just got to a point where in our own sort of private lives really things were getting uh, we as you get as you get older it's inevitable that four people who started a band when they were sixteen, seventeen, eighteen year old would sort of encounter things that would sort of challenge the status quo of being in a band after sort of ten, fifteen years. And so we just needed a bit of time separately to sort of like get get our together really and yeah. for Barry to get to get well and feel better about playing you know, music again and performing and it was a a long process for him because as you know this happens with a lot of musicians and artists and well with a a lot of people full stop actually doesn't it but you know sometimes you just need a little bit of a a little bit of space and a little bit of support in a different way and so although it sort of killed us all in in different ways to stop doing the band we had to for, for his sake and just just to sort of I, we, we, no one wanted to see him sort of continue to suffer in the way that he had done for about 12 months prior you know
1: so we ha- we have to stop really. Ross you mentioned that you, you sort of suggested that yeah this isn't a, an issue just for, for people in bands but it's a it's a wider issue in society that we're talking about a lot more at the moment but when you look at the music industry do you, think, and you know you talked about being on the hamster wheel and things like this do you think there's enough support in the music industry, or do you think there is like support now emerging, perhaps after, uh, perhaps not being there previously, in terms of supporting the mental health of people in bands? It's it's
0: a it's a difficult question to answer in a sense because I don't think that the the industry actually knows knows what kind of support it needs to offer. In in, in a sense, you know, I think in in that time that we had away from the band, I worked a lot in. Um, Theatre and, and writing songs for for theatre shows and working as a an MD a little bit with some theatre companies and things and one thing that I started to notice about arts council funded art forms was that the support network and the general approach to well being and kind of um, group support is a lot a lot stronger. I think because um, kind of mainstream music and i include sort of indie rock within that is is a kind of um principally a uh, uh, money-making kind of industry and a a kind of business transaction rather than a kind of protected publicly funded art form i think the kind of level of support and 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 sympathy and and sort of consideration is absolutely different and it's, it's such a shame i know that prs and help musicians uk and Several other sort of organisations have sprung up in the last handful of years to support um, the sort of mental well-being of artists and 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 think about those things a little bit more. But there's still this sort of strange separation between um, a band that signs to a label or or releases its own music and has has this kind of like um, financial. It's almost like you know you're expected to sort of be out there like like uh, a, a shopkeeper is or a plumber or you know anyone else that kind of runs their own business whereas there are a lot of other kind of more protected art forms that are sort of supported in a very different way and I know that there are some reasons for that but the the balance or the imbalance rather is is sort of so stark that I do definitely feel like that's why a lot of musicians in that kind of world do do struggle sometimes
1: yeah, it's interesting I guess it's an industry that you don't you don't really have that base, do you? It's not if you you know if you worked for a if you're an accountant, there's a sort of overarching accountancy body who you know can, can look after yeah. people in that industry. But I guess the music industry is slightly different in that way. But it's uh, yeah well, it's certainly an interesting one. It's 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 a challenge that, as you say, a lot of bands are probably going to have to face up to at some point.
0: Well, well, this is it, and, and and sometimes you can feel very much like you're on your own. You know, I mean, we're based in the northeast and our management is in London um, and I know that they're obviously only ever a phone call away or an email away, but there's not that sort of, um, I mean, we're, we're, we're fairly long in the tooth now, do you know what I mean? But, and, and we can handle and are quite comfortable with there being that separation. But I think for new artists in particular, you, you, you need people around you that actually care about you and not just about the success of the music that you've written or are, are about to write, you know, I think that labels, even almost by accident, can, can get into the habit of thinking about music and albums and artists as, as if they're sort of tins of beans on the shelf. And um, it's it, it, it just, it, like I say, the, Im- the imbalance is just so so stark and so obvious once you've got a little bit of perspective or you've got 1st standard experience of these things. Um And I I think it is getting better, but I think there's still such a long way to go in terms of people knowing what the right sort of behaviours are to have and how to kind of, um, well, how to support people in that situation.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's a tough one for the rest of the band as well, I suppose, in terms of knowing how best to support him through that, you know, with but i guess as well you know having you know, such good mates his brother in the band as well that that hopefully that afforded him that time and that space to to get himself ready to to return as you did uh last year with another album powers you know did um did did that sort of hiatus and and, and barry's uh, difficulties influence that album and and what sort of sparked that return oh yeah absolutely man i mean
0: i think we there was a there was a um event that there's a record shop in Sunderland that's quite popular and well-known called Pop Rex. It's run by Frank in the Heartstrings. And they had these sort of little events where they'd take a record and they'd sort of do a playback of it with a live audience and they'd get the band in to do a sort of Q and A and all this sort of stuff. And and we ended up doing one of those for our first record. We, we got asked to sort of come along and do one of these, these events. And, um, that got us all back together. I mean, obviously, we stayed close in this time, but it wasn't it wasn't very often that all four of us were together in one place. And we certainly didn't talk about the idea of sort of making another record or anything. We sort of knew that was fairly off the table for the, for the most part. But at this event, you know, we did like a question and answers thing and a few people out were asking. And afterwards, we all went out for a beer and started talking about what the sort of... What the likelihood might be of, of us doing that, and everyone expressed an interest in wanting to give that a go. Um, we all said that it wouldn't feel the same unless we made a new record and there was like new material. We didn't want to just sort of book a few gigs to, to go and play just the old songs. Um, and so we uh, we said, "All right, well, let's get in the rehearsal room and see what just just see what happens without any kind of pressure." And so that made, that meant the powers sort of took a little while to put together obviously we all have other things going on in our lives as well at this point we're not just sort of uh, members of the future heads we all have different musical projects and, and and other things in some cases so we had to just use the time available but we made a record we made it in newcastle and um, by the end of it we thought this is sort of uh, a collection of songs that we're actually massively proud of as it happens you know i think that it's a different version of the band it's not just anything rehashed it's it, it it's if it, it felt vital to me it felt really like that's the sort of record that we needed to make and and then getting back on the road again was just the sort of the icing on the cake it was so nice but it, 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 I, I would also say that it's become so familiar again so quickly and um sadly and now i mean obviously we haven't played for a little while because of coronavirus and whatnot but it, it, I mean, it, it feels like we didn't have that time away. Now it feels like we've been playing all
1: along. Yeah, well, it's good to have you back, uh, Ross. I mean, we—I um, know as you said at the start of the pod, you know, the next next few months are a bit. Um, yeah, you know, obviously, it looks like there won't be a lot of live music to watch. But one caught our eye up in October because we've, we've been speaking to the Holloways for another one of these podcasts, and they were oh yeah pr- pretty excited to be joining you and Reverend and the Makers in October <laughs> on the uh, Propaganda Tour. That sounds like a fun one as well. Yeah, man, I mean, I think over the years, we've done a few of these sort of like
0: package tours. We did one for <laughs> the NME in, in 2005, uh, which was great fun. Um, and we've crossed paths with John and, and Reverend and the Makers a lot over the years, you know, see him at festivals all the time. He's a super, super nice bloke. Um, and but, I mean, basically, we just, we got asked if we wanted to do it. It's a case of saying yes or no, but it's, it's a month of touring in October that we're all dead well up for because we were we were, we were were missing it at the point that we got asked to do the tour. And, uh, yeah, I, I I just think we can't wait to get out there. We're just hoping that, that in October the sh- the shows are still on, you know?
2: Yeah, fingers crossed, mate. And you've you got a few more before that, you said, a, a little mini-tour in September that hopefully will go ahead as well.
0: Yeah, we've got a very, very short little club tour. Um of just a few kind of little outstanding dates that we had here and there in the diary that obviously couldn't happen when they were meant to because of the current situation and so we sort of plumbed them all into a kind of little four in a row in september there um you, you could say some of the dates are slightly off the beaten track but we 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 did a fair sort of tour in december back there so this is quite a nice opportunity to get out and play some places that we've either not played before at all or haven't been to in a long time so at this point man we're just looking forward to playing any gigs that come our way because a lot of the summertime stuff's been been pulled and um you know we're on the phone to each other at the moment thinking like when when will we next get the play again you know so it's looking like september
2: yeah fingers crossed mate and uh yeah we'll, we'll be uh itching to get on get on board as well if we can to get to some of those dates uh sound really exciting um, nice, one, nice one. okay so before we go we just got three more uh, quick fire questions for you in the encore um, so think, thinking back over many years now in, in the band what do you think w- you'd, you'd lay, lay down as your best gig you've ever played
0: the best gig I think well the thing that stands out the most to me when I think about the sort of old days of this band is um, Blastonbury 2005 mm. um, we, we sort of we come back from America the day before um, the record had sort of been out a little while. Hands of Love had just been in the charts, and it was the sort of, it was the the the, the festival of that summer for us. And uh, it was on Barry's birthday to cap it all off. And <laughs> yeah, I still think I still think back to that show
1: now and just think, oh man, that is like, that is definitely one for the kind of memory bank for sure. Nice, good times, yeah. Um, next one. Which band are you loving right now? Who should we go and listen to?
0: Uh, well, she's about to release a new record and I think a lot of people are really fond of her at the moment, but um, Phoebe Bridges, yeah. someone whose music I really love. Uh, that first album, Stranger in the Alps, I absolutely played it to death. And uh, it's been quite a long time coming, this second album from her, so I'm looking forward to hearing what she's what she's come up with.
2: Great stuff. And um, And then back to you guys, finally, looking back on your music, we have mentioned your gigs, but what about the song? Can you pick out a song from your back catalogue that you'd say that was the, the one that stands out the one that you are most proud of? Oh, it's a, diff- it's a difficult
0: question, you know that, because obviously they sort of have all, all different sort of resonances, I guess. But um, I think um, I'd say Jekyll off off the last album, because mm-hmm. obviously a, a band like Lusk coming back after all of those years away is no easy thing to do and I think that song is a real kind of um, statement for us and it's something new that we hadn't really done before and um, yeah I'm, re- I'm really proud of that one so I'd pick Jekyll
1: nice choice nice choice Ross well hopefully as you say, we'll be seeing you playing it live soon as well and uh, well thanks for joining us on the Boys in the Band podcast today it's been a, been a pleasure to, to talk to you and sort of reflect on the future heads from start to finish pretty much we've gone all the way through haven't we <laughs> Thanks for that mate Yeah Yeah, yeah. brilliant soldier us Cheers
2: You're listening to the Boys in the Band podcast For more Naughty Nostalgia Check out our Twitter Facebook and Instagram pages And make sure you hit Subscribe to the podcast For more interviews like this